After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz in Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih V, Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Israhil Aziz stated, Previously I mentioned the expeditions and conquests that took place in the time of Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and I will continue to mention these today. Ali bin Muhammad Madaini narrates, that Tabristan was conquered in the era of Hazrat Usman anhu in 30 Hijri by Hazrat Sayyid bin As. Anhu. It is said that a battle ensued and the fort was captured by the Muslims. Then the conquest of Sawari, a battle of the mosque, took place in 31 Hijri. In majority of the books of history, the location of this battle is not mentioned. However, Alama ibn Khuldun has mentioned that this battle took place in Alexandria. According to one narration, the Muslims fought against the Byzantine forces in a battle named Sawari in 31 Hijri. Abu Mashir narrates that the battle of Sawari took place in 34 Hijri and the battle of Asabida, which was a naval battle, took place in 31 Hijri. And according to Vakadi, both battles of Savari and Asabida took place in 31 Hijri. When Hazrat Abdullah bin Saad bin Abi Sir defeated the French and the Berbers in Afriqiya and Al-Andalus, the Byzantines were outraged and went to Constance II. Following this, they prepared an army to fight the Muslims, the likes of which the Muslims had not witnessed since the beginning of Islam. This army consisted of 500 naval fleet which encountered the Muslims. Amir Muawiyah appointed Hazrat Abdullah bin Saad bin Abisar as the commander of the naval fleet. And when the two armies faced each other, a severe battle ensued and eventually Allah the Almighty granted victory to the Muslims as a result of which Constance II fled along with the remaining army. The conquest of Armenia took place in 31 Hijri. According to Waqdi, Armenia was conquered in 31 Hijri by Habib bin Masalma Fahri. Then the conquest of Khurasan took place in 31 Hijri. Hazrat Abdullah bin Amir set out towards Khurasan and conquered the city of Abra, Tus, Abiward and Nasa until he reached up to Sarkhas. And in the same year, the people of Mar formed a peace treaty 
Merv is in Turkmenistan and the other areas are situated in Iran. Then expeditions towards Byzantine territories began in 32 Hijri. In 32 Hijri, Amir Muawiya fought against Byzantine territories and reached the shores of Constantinople. The conquests of Marvruz, Talikan, Faryab, Juzjan and Tukharistan took place in 32 Hijri by Hazrat Abdullah bin Amir. Talikan is the middle region between Balk and Marv Arruz, located in present-day Afghanistan, and Faryab is also an area of Afghanistan. Juzjan is also situated in Afghanistan, and Takharistan is also part of present-day Afghanistan. All these areas were conquered. Abu al-Ashab Saadi narrates from his father that Ahnaf bin Qais fought against the people of Marv Arruz Talikan, Faryab and Juzjan well into the night until Allah the Almighty inflicted the enemy with defeat. Ahnaf bin Qais dispatched the cavalry under the command of Akra bin Habis to Juzjan and Akra was sent to deal with the remaining army that Ahnaf had already defeated. Thus, Akra encountered them in a ferocious battle in which many from the cavalry were martyred. Eventually, Allah the Almighty granted the Muslims victory. The conquest of Balkh took place in 32 Hijri. From Marv Arruz, Ahnaf bin Qais headed towards Balkh and besieged the residents in the city. In ancient times, Balkh was one of the most important cities of Khurasa and is the oldest city of present-day Afghanistan. The old part of the city is presently in ruins, located 12 kilometers to the right of the Balkh River. The residents of the city agreed to a peace treaty for 400,000 dirhams, which Ahnaf bin Qais accepted. Then the expedition of Harad took place in 32 Hijri. Hazrat Usman anhu dispatched Khulayb bin Abdullah bin Hanafi to Herat and Bazaris. Subsequently, he conquered both cities, but later, the people of the cities rebelled against the Muslims and allied themselves with the Qarin king. In 32 Hijri, Hazrat Abdullah bin Amir departed, leaving Qais bin Hasim as the governor in his absence. Qarin had prepared a large army to confront the Muslims. And Qais bin Hasim appointed Abdullah bin Hazim as the governor and left to assist Hazrat Abdullah bin Amir. Since there was a vast enemy facing them, Abdullah bin Hazim left to fight against Qarin with an army of 4,000 soldiers. Abdullah bin Hazim sent 600 soldiers as a vanguard and set out behind them. The vanguard force reached the army of Qarin in the night and launched an attack. And due to this sudden attack, the enemy became petrified and when the remaining Muslim army reached there, the army suffered a crushing defeat and Qarin was killed. The Muslims chased them and many people were either killed or imprisoned after their capture. During the era of Hazrat Usman anhu, Islam also reached the Indian subcontinent. Imam Yusuf writes in his book Al-Kharaj with reference to Imam Zuhri that Egypt and Syria were conquered during the era of Hazrat Umar anhu, and Afriqiya, Khurasan and Sindh were conquered during the era of Hazrat Usman anhu. There is a narration in regards to the arrival of Islam in the Indian subcontinent as follows. It is said that during the era of Hazrat Usman anhu, Hazrat Abdullah bin Muamir was given an army under his command and sent to Mukran and Sin, where he demonstrated a great valour and bravery in the conquest of Mukran. Later, he was appointed as the governor of these newly conquered lands.
With regards to Hazrat Mujashir bin Masood Sulami, it is written that whilst leading the Muslim army, he fought a jihad against the opponents of Islam in Kabul, the capital of modern-day Afghanistan. And according to the historians, Kabul was considered as a part of India in those days. During the era of Hazrat Usman anhu, Hazrat Mujashir fought against the opponents of Islam in Balochistan, a province of Pakistan, and also conquered the neighbouring area of Sajistan. Thereafter, the Muslims began to live in these areas of the Indian subcontinent and considered it as their homeland. There are various prophecies of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, regarding the discord and strife that emerged during the era of Hazrat Usman anhu's Khilafat. Hazrat Aisha anha narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, stated, O Usman, it is possible that Allah will bestow upon you a cloak. If people demand that you take this cloak off, do not take it off. This is a narration from Tirmazi and has been narrated in Sunan ibn Majah as follows. Hazrat Aisha anha narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated, O Usman, if ever Allah entrusts you with this matter, i.e. Khilafat, and the hypocrites seek to remove the cloak from you, which Allah has bestowed upon you, never take it off. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, repeated this three times. The narrator, Numan, states that he asked Hazrat Aisha anha that what stopped her from informing others about this news. Hazrat Aisha anha replied that she was made to forget this. Hazrat Kaab bin Ujra relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, once spoke about a discord and said that it would occur very soon. As the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was narrating this, a person walked by whose head was covered and clad in a mantle. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, stated that on that day, when the discord emerges, this individual will be on the truth. The narrator states that he immediately stood up and took hold of that person and found that it was Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He held Hazrat Usman from both hands and then turned him in the direction of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and asked, Is it this individual? The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied that yes. Hazrat Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha relates that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, stated during his illness that he wished some of his companions were in his company. Upon this they asked, O Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, shall we bring Abu Bakr? However, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, remained silent. They then submitted, O Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, shall we bring Umar? Again, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, remained silent. They then submitted, O Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, shall we bring Usman? Upon this, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied in the affirmative. Following this, Hazrat Usman anhu came and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, took him on his own to the side. As the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, began talking to him, the complexion of Hazrat Usman's face began to change. Qais relates that Abu Sahla, the freed slave of Hazrat Usman, told him that on the day of Yawm dar Hazrat Usman bin Affan anhu stated that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had given him a specific instruction which he was now going to fulfill. The narrator states that Hazrat Usman anhu then stated, that I am firmly steadfast upon this. Yawmuddar is the day when the hypocrites besieged Hazrat Usman anhu in his house and then martyred him in a merciless manner. Hazrat Muslim anhu has explained in great detail regarding the outset of dissension that began during the era of Hazrat Usman anhu's Khilafat and also the factors that led to it. Hazrat Muslim anhu states that both of these noblemen, i.e. Hazrat Usman and Hazrat Ali anhuma, are among the first devotees of Islam and their companions are also from among the best fruits of Islam. For a charge to be levelled against their honesty and virtue in reality is a disgrace upon Islam. 
Any Muslim who sincerely ponders over this fact will definitely reach the conclusion that in actuality, these people are above and beyond all kinds of partiality. And this statement is not without foundation. Rather, the pages of history are a testimony to this very fact for anyone who examines them with open eyes. As far as my research is concerned, whatever is alleged against these noblemen and their friends is the work of the opponents of Islam. After the era of the companions, various so-called Muslims, driven by their egos, have levelled allegations upon either one or the other from among these noblemen. However, despite this, the truth has always prevailed and has never remained veiled in secrecy. Then, with regards to the strife and discord that developed against Hazrat Usman anhu, Hazrat Muslim Aud anhu raises the question as to how this conflict arose. In relation to this, he states, Some have alleged the cause to be Hazrat Usman anhu, while others Hazrat Ali anhu. Some say that Hazrat Usman introduced certain innovations in the faith which caused an uproar amongst the Muslims. And others assert that Hazrat Ali secretly conspired to acquire Khilafat and had Hazrat Usman killed by creating hostility against him so that he could become the Khalifa himself. Hazrat Muslim Aud states, However, both of these notions are false. Neither did Hazrat Usman introduce innovations in the faith and nor did Hazrat Ali have him killed or took part in a conspiracy to murder him in order to become the Khalifa himself. In fact, there were other causes for this revolt. Hazrat Usman and Hazrat Ali are completely free from the blemish of such allegations. Both were very holy men. Hazrat Usman was the person about whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had said that he had served Islam to such a great extent that now he could do whatsoever he wished. God would not question him. This is a narration of Sunan al-Tirmazi. And this did not imply that he would not be held accountable even if he renounced Islam. In fact, it inferred that he had acquired so many qualities and had progressed so much in virtue that it was no longer possible for any of his actions to be in violation of the commandments of Allah the Exalted. As such, Hazrat Usman anhu was not a man who would issue an order in violation to the Sharia. Nor was Hazrat Ali anhu, a man who would secretly conspire to assume Khilafat. Hazrat Muslim Aud anhu, then further states, In the beginning of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman anhu, we see no sign of disorder for up to six years. Quite the contrary, it appears that people were generally pleased with him. In fact, it is ascertained from history that in this era he was even dearer to the people than Hazrat Umar Not only was he dear to the people, in fact, they were in awe of him. A poet of that era testifies to this fact in his poetic verses in the following words. He writes, O rebellious people, do not loot and devour the people's wealth in the reign of Usman. For Ibn Affan is he whom you have experienced. In accordance with the Quranic injunctions, he executes those who pillage. He has always been a guardian of the injunctions of this Holy Quran. He is the one who teaches the people to act upon these injunctions. However, after six years we see a campaign in the seventh year, and this was not directed against Hazrat Usman anhu. Rather, it was directed against the companions or against various governors. As such, Tabari narrates that Hazrat Usman took full consideration of the rights of people. However, those people who did not enjoy the distinction of being the foremost pioneers in Islam did not receive the same level of honour as the early and pioneer Muslims did in gatherings, and nor did they receive an equal share in rule and wealth.
Over time, some people began to criticize this superiority and deemed it to be an injustice. However, these people feared the Muslim masses and out of their fear that the people would oppose them, they would not express their views. Instead, the practice which they had employed was to secretly incite people against the companions. And so, when they came across an uneducated Muslim or a freed Bedouin slave, they would open up their book of complaints. Consequently, either out of ignorance or due to their own desire for position, certain people would join them. And gradually, this group began to multiply and reached a large number. Hazrat Muslim ta'ala further states, that when disorder is about to arise, its contributing factors also begin to accumulate in an extraordinary manner. On the one hand, those of a jealous disposition were beginning to grow incensed against the companions, and on the other hand, the zeal for Islam, which is usually present in the hearts of all those who convert from other religions, began to decline amongst these new Muslims who had neither lived in the company of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and nor had they received any opportunity to spend a great deal of time with those who had been in his company. As a matter of fact, as soon as they accepted Islam, it was their presumption that they had learned everything. As soon as this Islamic fervour lessened, the control which Islam possessed over their hearts also began to fall weak, and they once again began to enjoy committing the sins that they had once indulged in before they became Muslims. When they were punished for their crimes, instead of reforming themselves, they became bent upon the destruction of those who were administrating these sentences. Ultimately, they proved to become the cause of creating a great rift in the unity enjoyed by Islam. The centre of these people was in Kufa. However, the strangest thing to note is that an incident took place in Medina itself, which demonstrates that in that time, some people were as unfamiliar with Islam as the ignorant people of today who live in the remotest areas. Umran ibn Abban was a person who married a woman during her iddat, or a period in which a woman is prohibited from marriage. When Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, learned of this, he was extremely displeased at him, and not only did he order a separation, but also exiled him from Medina to Basra. Thus, this occurrence demonstrates how certain people began to perceive that the mere acceptance of Islam authorized them as being scholars of Islam. They did not feel a need for further research. Perhaps due to an influence of various views related to believing in unlawful things as being permissible, they deemed it a futile act to follow the Sharia. Hazrat Muslim Aud further narrates, In truth, this entire disturbance was the result of a secret conspiracy hatched by the Jews. They were joined by certain Muslims who were attracted to the desire of the world and had left their faith. For neither were the provincial governors to blame for this, nor were they the cause of this disorder. In other words, this was instigated by certain Jews, and some Muslims also joined them. But nonetheless, the governors appointed by Hazrat Usman were free from blame, and nor did they instigate this disorder. Hazrat Muslimah states that their only fault was that they had been appointed by Hazrat Usman and the fault of Hazrat Usman was that he was holding fast to the rope of Islamic unity despite his old age and physical weakness. He was carrying the burden of the Muslim Ummah upon his shoulders and was concerned for the establishment of the Islamic Sharia. He would not allow the rebellious and tyrannous to oppress the weak and helpless according to their desire. As such, the following incident testifies to the truth of this fact. When the same rebels held a meeting in Kufa and they began to discuss how disorder may be created in Muslim affairs, every one of them unanimously gave the opinion that La Wallahi, 
لا يرفع رأس ما دام عثمان على الناس That is, by God, no one can dare to raise their head so long as the reign of Usman prevails. It was the very person of Hazrat Usman himself which prevented rebellion. It was necessary to move him aside in order for these people to freely achieve their goals. Then explaining further details about the strive and discord, Hazrat Muslim Aud states, and then Hazrat Usman called the mischief makers and gathered the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him as well. And when everyone had gathered, Hazrat Usman informed them of the whole affair. The two informants also stood by as witnesses and gave their testimony about what the rebels were conspiring. Upon this, all the companions gave the following verdict and said that to execute these people who are creating disorder in the name of peace and reformation. Because the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said, then may the curse of Allah be upon such an individual who calls people towards his own obedience or the obedience of another at a time when there is an imam who is present. Thus, kill such a person, whoever he may be. Then they reminded everyone of the words of Hazrat Umar radiallahu This narration is from Sahih Muslim in which he states that I do not deem the execution of any such person permissible for you, in which I do not have a part. In other words, no one may be executed unless there is an indication from the government. Upon hearing the verdict of the companions, Hazrat Usman radiallahu stated, No, we will forgive them and accept their pleas, and we will counsel them with all our efforts, and we will not oppose anyone so long as he does not clearly violate the law or express disbelief. Hazrat Usman radiallahu then stated that these people have mentioned certain things which you are aware of as well. However, their plan is to debate with me on these issues so that they can return and say that we engaged in a debate with Usman regarding these matters and he has been defeated. These people allege i.e. against Hazrat Usman radiallahu that whilst on journey I offered the prayer in full but the Holy Prophet peace be upon him used to perform qasr i.e. shortened prayer whilst on journey however it was only in Mina where I offered the prayer in full and even that was due to two reasons firstly because I owned property there and I had married there and secondly because I came to know that in those days people had converged for the Hajj and the uneducated from among them would begin to say that the Khalifa only offers two rakats, i.e. two units of prayer, and so there must only be two rakats in the prayer. Hazrat Usman then asked the companions that is this not true? The companions replied that yes, this is correct. Then Hazrat Usman stated that the second allegation that they raise is that I have introduced the innovation of establishing public pastures, although this is a false accusation. Pastures were established before me, and they were introduced by Hazrat Umar radiallahu and I have only made them more spacious due to the growing number of camels which are given in arms. Then, the land designated for public pastures is not the wealth of anyone. I have no benefit in this. I only have two camels, Whereas at the time when I became Khalifa, I was the wealthiest amongst all the Arabs. And now I only have two camels which I have kept for Hajj. Hazrat Usman radiallahu stated that at the time he was elected as the Khalifa, he was the wealthiest of all the Arabs. But now he only had two camels in his possession. Again he asked that is this not true? The noble companions affirm that indeed it is. Then Hazrat Usman radiallahu stated, that they say that I appoint comparatively young men as governors, even though I only appoint such individuals as governors who possess virtuous attributes and manners. Holy men before me appointed even younger people as governors than those appointed by me. And far more objections were raised against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, for appointing Usama bin Zaid as the general of an army that are now being raised against me. Is this not true? The companions again responded, It is true. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu then stated 
that these people raise objections before the people but hide the real events. In this manner, Hazrat Usman who stated all the objections one by one and refuted them one after the other. The companions emphatically persisted that they should be executed, but Hazrat Usman did not agree and released them. Tabari states that Abal Muslimuna illa katlahum wa aba illa tarkahum. The rest of the Muslims were adamant on having them executed, but Hazrat Usman could not be convinced in any way to punish them. Therefore, this incident shows the various types of falsehood and deception which would be employed by the mischief makers. In that era, when the press and means of transport were not as developed as today, it was very easy for these people to mislead the uneducated. In reality, however, these people had no legitimate reason to rise up, and neither did the truth support them, nor did they speak the truth. All their endeavours were founded upon lies and falsehood. It was only the mercy of Hazrat Usman that was saving them, otherwise the Muslims would have torn them to pieces. The companions could not have ever tolerated that the peace and security which they had achieved by sacrificing their lives be done away with in this manner by the mischief of a few wicked people. They could see that the Islamic State would crumble if these people were not promptly punished. However, Hazrat Usman was an embodiment of mercy and he desired in any way possible for these people to be rightly guided so that they would not die in a state of disbelief. As such, Hazrat Usman would show leniency towards these people and looked upon their actions of manifest rebellion as a mere intention to commit rebellion and would put off their punishment. This incident also illustrates that the companions greatly detested these people. The reason being that firstly, the mischief makers stated themselves that only three people of Medina were with them and no more, i.e. the mischief makers only named three residents of Medina who were with them. If other companions were also on their side, then they would have named them as well. And secondly, the companions demonstrated through their actions as well that they abhorred the actions of these mischief makers and looked upon their deeds as being in violation of the Sharia to such extent that in their view no punishment lesser than execution was acceptable. If the companions supported these people or the people of Medina held the same view as the mischief makers, then they would not have needed any further justification or excuse and would have killed Hazrat Usman there and then and elected another person for the office of Khilafat in his stead. However, we observe that instead of these people being successful in killing Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, their very own lives became endangered by the unsheathed swords of the companions. It was only due to the favour and kindness of the very same gracious and compassionate person whom they sought to murder and against whom they had instigated an outrage that they were able to safely escape. One is astonished at the malice and unrighteousness of these mischief makers for they did not derive the slightest benefit from this incident. Each and every one of their allegations was amply refuted and all their objections were proven to be false and unfounded. They witnessed the mercy and compassion of Hazrat Usman and the soul of every individual bore witness to the fact that the likes of such a person cannot be found on the face of the earth at this time. However, instead of repenting for their sins and being ashamed of their cruelties and feeling remorse for their trespasses and refraining from their mischief, these people began to burn even more in the fire of rage and fury. They considered their being rendered speechless a disgrace and the forgiveness of Hazrat Usman as being the result of their good planning. As such, they returned whilst devising strategies to fulfil their remaining plan in the future. I will continue to narrate these accounts, inshallah, in the future. However, I will now speak about some members who have passed away recently. The first is of a martyr, Abdul Qadir Sahib Bashir from Bazid Khel Peshawar, who was martyred on 11th February. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily, to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return.
According to the reports, Abdul Qadir Sahib worked at the clinic of his uncle, the late Dr. Manzoor Ahmed Sahib, located in Bazid Khail Peshawar. The disease was present in one of the rooms of the clinic with other members of the Jamaat to offer the Zohar prayers. A bell sounded from the door which the patients would use. When Abdul Qadir Sahib opened the door, a youth in the guise of a patient opened fire on him, as a result of which he was severely injured. He sustained two gunshots to the chest. He was immediately taken to hospital, but owing to his injuries, he passed away. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily, to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. The deceased martyr was 65 years old, and the perpetrator of the killing was apprehended by the police, or perhaps the people apprehended him and handed him over to the police. The family of the deceased, along with other Ahmadi families, have been facing severe persecution for some time. On 19th January 2009, religious extremists attacked this clinic as a result of which Abdul Qadir Sahib was shot in the leg. Subsequently, he was forced to migrate from Peshawar and only after a long time returned to Peshawar. Owing to recent wave of persecution, under orders from the Jamaat, he had to move to Rabwa two months ago. His family was residing in Rabwa, but the deceased was residing in Bazid Khel due to his work in the aforementioned clinic. Ahmadiyyad entered the family of the deceased through his paternal grandfather, respected Nizamuddin Ahmad, who had the honour of pledging allegiance in the Khilafat of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. His grandfather had two elder brothers, Dr. Fateh Deen Sahib, who was a civil surgeon in Peshawar, and Abdul Latif Sahib, who was an engineer. Upon hearing about the claim of the promised Messiah, alayhi salatu wassalam, when Dr. Fateh Deen Sahib was only a student, he visited Qadiyan in 1902. Out of love, the promised Messiah, alayhi salam, even placed his blessed hand on his hand and stated that he was a good youth. However, he never had the opportunity to pledge allegiance. Later, he came to the UK on a scholarship and attended his medical degree. And then in 1908, when he heard about the demise of the promised Messiah, alayhi salatu wassalam, he visited Qadiyan and pledged allegiance to Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. His grandfather's other brother, Abdul Latif Sahib, who was an engineer, also pledged allegiance in the time of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, along with his brother. Upon the advice of both brothers, members of their family, including the grandfather of the deceased, pledged allegiance. The deceased possessed many qualities. He had great love for Khilafat and had always showed great respect and admiration for office bearers of the Jamaat. He had a passion for calling others towards the way of Allah and owing to this he faced a lot of persecution. And owing to this persecution in the past two years, he moved houses seven times. But by the grace of Allah, he remained firm upon Ahmadiyyat. Aside from tahajjud and offering the compulsory prayers, he was regular in reciting the Holy Qur'an. He was very compassionate and sociable. Throughout his life, he never quarrelled with anyone. His wife states that we experienced countless highs and lows throughout our lives, but he was never aggressive in his conduct. Even if I spoke to him in a stern manner, he would always reply in a soft manner. He always showed love and compassion to his children, he had a yearning to attain the rank of martyrdom and he would always say that when faced with a trial he would never turn back on khilafat the ahmadiyyat but instead would embrace death. She further writes that the state of his prayers was such that on occasions when he was in sajda or prostration family members would nudge him slightly lest something had happened to him, God forbid. In other words, he would remain in sajda for a long time. The deceased martyr had the opportunity to serve the Jamaat in Bazid Khail as Muntazim Tirbiyat. The deceased leaves behind his wife, Sajda Qadir Sahiba, four sons and five daughters. May Allah the Almighty elevate the status of the deceased martyr and safeguard those he leaves behind. And may Allah the Almighty enable his children to continue his virtuous deeds. The second funeral is of Akbar Ali Sahib, son of Ibrahim Sahib, 
who was a prisoner in the way of Allah. He resided in Shoktabad colony in the district of Nankana and passed away on 16th February. Akbar Ali Sahib, who had been imprisoned in the way of Allah, passed away on 16th February 2021, owing to a heart attack whilst in Shekhupura prison. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to Him shall we return. There were two other people alongside him and a case was filed against all of them on 2nd May 2020. In October, on the day when their bail was going to be officially confirmed, the High Court rejected their interim bail and ordered for them to be imprisoned. Subsequently, all three were placed in prison and later, in January 2021, the magistrate in Nankana Sahib, without even hearing our viewpoint, in a completely biased proceeding, added the charge of Section 295C of the Pakistan Penal Code against them, which is a very serious charge. In any case, the deceased spent the last four and a half months in prison and was 55 years of age at the time of his demise. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, the deceased was part of the Nizami Wasiyat. Ahmadiyyat entered his family through his father, respected Ibrahim Sahib, who did the bath during the era of the second Khalifa in 1920 alongside his brother, respected Ismail Sahib. Akbar Ali Sahib joined the army and served in the army for 23 years as a Havaldar, a non-commissioned officer equivalent to a sergeant. And he retired from the army 16 years ago and was then working as a security guard. He was a very responsible and brave individual and he was working as security guard at a bank prior to being imprisoned. An opponent of the community complained to the bank manager that he had employed Akbar Ali Sahib, who was a kafir, i.e. a disbeliever. The bank manager replied that every morning he checks the CCTV recordings and Akbar Ali would offer nawafil i.e. voluntary prayers in the night, recited the Holy Quran and observed the fasts of the Ramadan. Therefore, how could he be a kafir? He must have been a very bold and courageous manager. The deceased had the opportunity to serve as the president of his local Jamaat for six years and prior to his imprisonment he was serving as the secretary finance of his Jamaat. He had great compassion for the poor, he was very hospitable and showed a lot of love to all the members of his family. He had great passion for propagating the message of Islam and would always speak in a very convincing manner as a result of which he would have to face a lot of opposition as well. And it was owing to the opposition against him that he had to resign from his job as a security guard. He is survived by two wives, Zenith Bibi Saiba and Fazilat Bibi Saiba, and also one son who is 19 years of age and a daughter who is 16 years of age. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and mercy and elevate his status. And may he also be the protector and helper of his progeny and enable them to continue his good deeds. The next funeral is of Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib, who was currently serving as the Vakilul Mal Salis in Tariq Jadid Rabwa. He was also serving as Naib Sadr Ansarullah and also Naib Afsar Jalsa Salana. He passed away at the Tahir Heart Institute in Rabwa at the age of 67. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to Him shall we return. The deceased's grandfather, Babul Khan Bhatti Sahib, accepted Ahmadiyyat. However, Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib's father did not accept Ahmadiyyat as he did not have the full contention of his heart at the time. In other words, Babul Khan Sahib had accepted Ahmadiyyat but his father did not. In any case, one day he was at the farm as they did agricultural work and Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib's father was also there and was lying down with a blanket over him. During this time, a Molvi from the non-Ahmadi mosque, where Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib's father would also go and pray, happened to pass by and sat down. Their discussion led to the topic of Ahmadiyyat, and during the course of the discussion, the Molvi Sahib admitted that Ahmadiyyat was indeed true. Upon this, Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib's father immediately removed the blanket from his face and stood up and said, 
that if Ahmadiyyad is true, then why are you leading us astray? In other words, he led him astray by telling him that Ahmadiyyad was wrong and that he should not follow his father in accepting Ahmadiyyad. His father then stated, But listen carefully, as of today I will be on the side of wherever the truth is. Thereafter he performed the bath at the hands of Hazrat Muslim Khalid Mahmudul Hassan Bhatti Sahib attained a BA from Punjab University in Political Science in 1978 and in 1980 acquired an MA in History. He then worked in government service as a lecturer for two years and then gave his resignation after two years. In 1982 he dedicated his life for the service of the Jamaat and had the opportunity to serve the Jamaat in various capacities for approximately 38 years. In 1982, he was appointed in Vakalat al Tanfiz and also served as the Naib Vakil. He was then appointed as Vakil al Divan and then as Vakil al Mal Salis. He also had the opportunity to officially visit Indonesia, Singapore, Burma, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Uganda, etc. And whichever country he visited, he would take a very detailed assessment and then guide them accordingly. Particularly when he visited Burma and Sri Lanka, the Jamaat greatly benefited from his guidance and they acknowledged that as well. Many of them have been writing to me and mentioning that they learned a great deal from him about the Nizam Jamaat, i.e. the administrative system, and that he played a significant role in establishing their relationship with Khilafat. Similarly, he was part of the Merkazi Amla Qudam al-Hamadiyya and Ansarullah and was a member of various committees including the Qazar Board i.e. the Board of Jurisprudence. He is survived by his wife, Nusrat Nahid Saiba, and two daughters and a son, Khurra Musman, who is serving as a Wakfizindgi in MTA here in the UK. His wife writes that after completing his MA in political science, he expressed to his father that he wanted to pursue an MA in history. His father advised him that he could study as much as he wanted, but he should remember that if he was going to work, then he should only work for the Jamaat. She further states that in the 43 years of their marriage, he always treated her with utmost kindness. And whenever he would return from his official travels, he would always relate incidents of how Allah the Almighty treated him with love. He was a very loving father, and he would make every effort to fulfill all their wishes which were permissible. His eldest daughter, Dr. Saima, states that she twice applied for a visa and it was rejected on both occasions. She applied for the third time and at the same time Bhatti Saib, or her father, was leaving for an official travel. And so she requested him to delay the trip by a few days because she had been given a date for her visa result and had to go to the embassy. Upon this, he said that this was not possible and that she should go alone because he was travelling for the sake of Allah the Almighty and therefore God Almighty himself would bestow his blessings upon her. And it so happened that a visa was approved on that occasion. His younger daughter writes that he was a very loving father and treated them with utmost kindness. He never told them off and would always advise them in a very loving manner. He would always give precedence to Jamaat work and no matter how important the work was to do at home, he would first finish all his office work and then come home. He always was ready to serve the Jamaat and had great love and passion for Jamaat work. He would always give precedence to his faith over all worldly matters. I have also observed that he would work very diligently and always serve with utmost loyalty and with the spirit of dedication. One of his daughters states that whenever we were faced with a difficulty, he would advise to always place trust in Allah the Almighty. He would say that Allah the Almighty will never abandon them and indeed Allah the Almighty never did. His son writes that ever since they can remember, they have always seen him serving the Jamaat. 
Whenever he would face a difficulty or a trial, he would say that since he was serving the faith and doing God's work, therefore he will grant help and indeed Allah would bestow his blessings and provide him ease in his work. He truly upheld the spirit of his work. His son further states that despite his engagement in serving the Jamaat, he never neglected any of his responsibilities in the home. He personally tended to each and every matter. Lake Abid Sahib, who is serving as a legal advisor in Tariqa Jadid, says that I have been working with him for 38 years. He always respected and upheld the traditions of the Jamaat. One of his many qualities was that he considered it of utmost importance to protect the assets of the Jamaat with great diligence. Then one of his class fellows, Muhammad Idris Sahib, says that after dedicating his life, Khalid, who was generally very quiet, transformed into a unique personality. The love for Khilafat was perhaps ingrained in every fibre of his being and he always showed complete obedience to the Khalifa of the time and was always immersed in the service of the Jamaat. A worker in the department of Vagalit Mal Salist says that any mail that the office received was never left pending. He immediately worked on it and advised us to complete our daily tasks on the very same day. He would say that life is unpredictable and one may not get a chance to do it the next day. As I've mentioned, wherever he went, whether it was in Pakistan or abroad, he left a positive impression and he worked with a spirit of serving the Jamaat and upheld his work with great sincerity. May Allah the Almighty elevate his status and may he also enable his children to continue his good deeds. The next funeral is of respected Mubarak Ahmed Tahir Sahib who was serving as the legal advisor of Sadr Anjuman Ahmadiyya. He passed away in the Tahir Heart Institute on 17th February at the age of 81. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Ahmadiyyat entered his family through his father, respected Sufi Ghulam Muhammad Sahib, in 1927. When he came to know of the establishment of the Jamaat in Qadiyan, he and his relatives decided to travel to Qadiyan in order to inquire further. Hence, in 1926, they travelled from Tarparka Sindh in order to attend the Jalsa Salana in Qadiyan. And they were greatly impressed by Hazrat Muslim Allah and the Jamaat, but they did not perform the bath. He decided to go to Qadiyan the following year as well, but his friends refused to go. Nevertheless, when he travelled to Qadiyan the following year, in 1927, he attended the Jalsa and performed the bath there. He was 28 at the time. His village strictly followed the Ahli Hadith sect of Islam and faced great opposition as a result. His in-laws told his wife that he had become a disbeliever and called her back home. However, after a short while, his wife stated that I have observed that after becoming a so-called disbeliever, he has in fact become a better Muslim. Therefore, I have returned and I do not see any reason to leave him. In any case, the entire village boycotted the family, so much so that they prevented them from obtaining water from the well in the village. As a result, they had to travel several miles in order to collect water. He narrated that after several weeks, the well in our local village dried out and the people of the village believed that since they had prevented Sufi Sahib from obtaining water, therefore the water of their village has dried out as well. Following this, they started preparing a well again, and they went to him and asked him to be the first individual to make a financial contribution, Aishanda, towards it, as they believed that if he contributed towards it, the well would continuously provide water. Therefore, even though his relatives did not accept Ahmadiyyat, however, they stopped opposing him following this incident. The deceased is survived by his wife, Rashda Parveen Sahiba, and Allah the Almighty has blessed them with four sons and two daughters. 
One of his sons is Hafiz Ijazah Matahir, who resides here in Islamabad and is serving as a teacher in Jamia Hamidiyya, UK. Another son of his is Nasir Matahir, who is a life devotee and serving in the Review of Religions in Canada. In 1968, respected Mubarak Tahir Sahib completed his Masters in Economics and then in 1969 he obtained his LLB degree and then in January of 1970 his request for Waqf was approved. After having obtained his Masters and LLB degrees, he was appointed in vakalat Uliya as the Muharrar Darja Awal. Then, on 5th February 1971, he was sent to Uganda as a teacher and returned to Pakistan in 1972 and had the opportunity to serve in vakalat Malsani for some time. Then in 1976, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah sent him to Lahore along with various other department heads in order to receive training regarding income tax and matters pertaining to properties. He also enrolled in the Bar Council and then in 1970 he was appointed in Tariqa Jadid as the legal advisor. On 1st of July 1983, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV Allah appointed him as the legal advisor in Sadr Anjuman as well, and he served in this post until his demise. His services span a period of over 50 years. He also had the opportunity to serve the Markazi Khudam al in various capacities as a Mahtamim. His wife, Rashta Barveen Sahiba, says that he would always enter the home with a smile on his face and would convey the greetings of peace, salam, and he would then first offer his prayers and then he would eat something. She continues that he had countless memories with the Khulafa and whenever he would sit with the children of the family, he would recount those faith-inspiring incidents and he would tell them about the bounties, blessing and rewards associated with remaining attached with the institution of Khilafat. He would discreetly help those in need to the extent that even we would not know about it. And we would only find out when someone who had been helped by him would come and tell us or express this in some way or another. He would share the pain of others and would partake in their happiness. He would offer nawafil prayers, i.e. voluntary prayers, recite the Holy Quran and invoke salutations upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He used to say that God Almighty himself sees to the success of a life devotee. One must have complete trust in Allah pray, seek forgiveness and develop love for Khilafat. It is also very important to write to the Khalifa for prayers. Indeed, all of these things are true. He had a great deal of trust in Allah and I myself have seen when I was Nazri Allah and even before that when I had to deal with him in relation to various Jamaat works that he had great trust in Allah the Almighty. Whenever he was faced with difficult tasks, he had a high degree of trust in Allah and would say that this is the work of the community and will be done through the prayers of the Khalifa, God willing. And he would begin tasks by first offering prayers and giving alms, and then by the grace of Allah, he would see success as well. His son Hafiz Ijaz Sahib says that once he related an incident that in 1967, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III was travelling to Karachi by train. The train stopped for some time at the Hyderabad station, where many Ahmadis gathered in order to meet Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III. Hazur was standing in the door of the train and he signalled to respected Mubarak Tahir Sahib to come near. He did not have any prior recognition of him or at least he, i.e. Mubarak Tahir Sahib, thought that Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah, did not know him. In any case, he continues to say that Mubarak Tahir Sahib quickly moved forward through the crowds towards Hazur. When he reached the door, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah, reached into his sherwani, i.e. the traditional long coat, and took out some money and placed it into the pocket of Mubarak Tahir Sahib, after which the train left. Mubarak Tahir Sahib was used to say that it was through the blessings of the money which Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah had placed in his pocket that his pockets always remained full. And this in fact is the reality, that Allah the Almighty kept his pockets full and he would receive income in extraordinary ways. But just as he would receive this, in the same manner he would spend openly on the poor and for the community as well.
After some time, upon seeing a dream, he dedicated his life for the service of the Jamaat. When he dedicated his life, his marriage had been settled by then and the nikah had also taken place. He was in Hyderabad at the time and his wife's female relatives had brought her for some medical treatment there. They also informed Mubarak Ahmad Tahir Sahib as well that they were going to see a doctor. When they disembarked from the train, the female family member said to Mubarak Ahmad Tahir Sahib that she had heard that he had dedicated his life and that life devotees do not even get enough money to eat. Mubarak Sahib immediately said that up until then only the nikah had occurred and the marriage had not yet taken place and that if they had so much doubt about his future, they should take their daughter home and then he left from there displeased. In this way he upheld the honour of being a life devotee and Allah the Almighty upheld his honour by bestowing upon him an abundance of wealth while being a life devotee. He was the legal advisor during the time of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah and he would have to travel out of town in order to deal with cases and he would have to travel by bus as not everyone had the facility of a car at the time in Rabwa. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah had instructed them that whenever he returned from a journey, he should report to him. He said that on one occasion, it was extremely late at night and he only arrived a couple of hours before the Fajr prayer. And so he thought that there was no need to inform Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah of his return at that time, as he would be disturbing him, as perhaps he would be offering voluntary prayers, or offering salat, or he could be sleeping. And so he thought that since he had arrived a couple of hours before Fajr, he would simply inform him at the Fajr prayer. When Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah saw him at the Fajr prayer, he asked, Mubarak Sahib, what time of the night did you arrive? He informed him that he had arrived just a few hours ago. Upon this, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III Rahimahullah stated, that had you come and informed me at that time, then perhaps I could have had some sleep as well as I had been waiting for you and did not know whether you had arrived safely or not. His son further writes, When I decided to devote my life and go to Jamia, my father said to me that to devote your life means to be obedient. You have a hasty temperament which is not conducive to being a life devotee. To devote your life is to serve quietly and with complete obedience. And so, if you are able to do this, then it is a matter of great happiness. Otherwise, I do not wish that you devote your life and then later abandon it. Hence, this was the guidance and training which he gave. And by the grace of Allah, till now his son has been able to fulfill this and may he continue to do so. During the sermons of the Khalifa of the time, he would always instruct everyone in the home to leave what they were doing and to attentively listen to the sermon. If there was any guidance, instruction or financial appeal made in the sermon, then as soon as the sermon was finished, he would begin implementing it right away and would urge his children to do the same. Mirza Adil Ahmed, who was his assistant in legal department of Sadr Anjuman, says, that as far as I have seen, he truly loved Khilafat. He had an unwavering belief in prayer, and if there was ever a matter of concern or a difficult task which he had to tend to, he would say that I have prayed a great deal in my Nawafil prayers and have given alms, let us now write to the Khalifa and then see Allah will bestow his blessings upon us. He further states that he was a man of great honour, yet at the same time, for the sake of Jamaat work, even if he had to ask the person who made tea or the assistant in the office for any help, he would never hesitate in asking. He would also adopt all possible means to establish connections with those in authority. On one occasion, a decision had been made by the Anjuman and it was his opinion that if this decision was implemented, then it could have a negative impact on the Jamaat. And so he told me that the decision did not seem right, and he then said that he would write his opinion to the Khalifa of the time, as our duty is to simply give him our opinion, and then whatever decision is made will be full of blessings. Dr. Sultan Mubashir says that he knew how to establish connections with those in position of authority, and he would always use these connections for the benefit of the Jamaat. No matter how difficult the circumstances, he always kept a smile on his face and never expressed any sort of worry. In order to attend to cases pertaining to the Jamaat, he had to travel to such places where aside from other difficulties, there was also a threat to his life. However, this courageous man never turned away from fulfilling his duties.
As I mentioned earlier, that Allah the Almighty had granted him an abundance of wealth and Allah the Almighty would help him through bonds from which he received large sums. Dr. Sahib says that once he received about 5 million rupees, out of which he gave about 60% to various financial schemes of the Jamaat and also helped the poor and needy. And this is not an isolated incident, rather this was always his practice. Allah the Almighty would grant him large sums and he would give most of it in financial contributions, i.e. gender, and for the sake of helping the poor. He had two great desires which he told him about, and for which he would also ask others to pray. The first was to remain in service until his last breath, and the second was to depart this world whilst in a state of independency and not be a burden on anyone. Allah the Almighty fulfilled both of these desires. I myself have seen that he possessed many great qualities, he worked with great patience and care and never became worried. His level of trust in Allah was extraordinary. May Allah the Almighty elevate his station and enable his progeny to become the recipient of his prayers. After offering the prayers, I will lead the funeral prayer in absentia of all the deceased members, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, 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 وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْهُ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَنَشَدُوا اللَّهُ إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَنَشَدُوا أَنَّهُ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِبَادُ اللَّهِ رَحِمَكُمُ اللَّهُ إِنَّ اللَّهُ يَعْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْلِسَانِ وَيْتَاوِذِ الْقُرْبَانِ وَيَنْهَى عَنِ الْفَاشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرِ وَالْبَغِيِ يَعِذُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ أُذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ يَذْكُرْكُمْ وَدُوهُ يَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ